It's lovely to be with you. And um, I wish I wasn't uh, seeing my daughter. She's been so emotional this week, just saying goodbye to so many of you. But the cool thing is we're still in the same church, just part of the bigger thing. But it is awesome to, uh, to be with you guys. And I, I really, this morning, I was grappling with, Lord, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to share? And um, I went through probably about 50 preachers. And uh, I'm not even kidding. And nothing was gelling. And finally, just felt this was the one. And it's just been confirmed more and more to me as I've been settling into the morning that this is what the Lord wants to say to us. And it's an angle that I don't normally bring. And so enjoy some ice cream because I normally give you a... But uh, when I say ice cream, I think one of the great challenges in our generation is that Christianity becomes so self-centered and so little God-centered and us-centered. And so we work hard at trying to build a muscle that's weak. But I think sometimes the Lord just wants to remind us that there is ice cream in His meal. There, there is pudding. There, there is there are, there are incredible, gracious, good moments where God just showers us with His kindness and His love. And so the title, if I'm going to give it a title, is "Lavished in Love," and uh, that's what I want to talk about. And 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 it really comes down to how do you think God feels about you and thinks about you? I mean, really, beyond the theological. I've been saved, I've been justified, my name's written in his book. How do you think he actually feels about you? How do you think that he, he, um, I mean, how how significant are you in a sea of people, what, there's seven billion people on the planet right now. How important am I actually? How significant is my life? I'm a, the Bible talks about on one hand that I'm like dust, I'm like vapor, like a flower that blooms and then disappears and very soon after I'm gone people forget the flower's gone and there is this true it's true and it, it's the earthing side of us as humanity when we realize that we really are nothing but then at the same time the Bible talks about this incredible lavish love that God has for us how he lavishes his love upon us and I often wonder, you know, as we read our Bibles and you read about people like Abraham and David, who was a man of the God's own heart, the king of Israel, and we, we see their relationship to God and we think, wow, I wish I had what they had. But I wonder sometimes if we don't sell short the wonder of how we relate to God and how he relates to us. And so I, I remember, you know, maybe the earth is the day that I got saved, I mean, I, I kind of grew up in church. My mom's in the front row. My dad did the books for the church for many years. Uh, my mom sang in the choir. Um, and, um, and I mean, so they were very much a part of church life growing up. It was a traditional church. But I grew up with this concept of a God that was very far away. Um, wasn't, I mean, kind of like if you're really in a crisis, he might intervene. <laughs> but it was a very distant God. And at some point, it felt so detached from reality, this God, that I turned my back on what they tried to teach me and ended up going into Eastern religions trying to find God because I figured this Christian thing felt like it was full of hypocrisy. And it was only when I was about 19 years of age, turning probably maybe even 20, um, that I got invited to a church that was a bit like this. People seemed to have this relationship with God that was a little bit threatening, to be honest, watching people clap and dance and Oh, they didn't dance. They just clapped and lifted their hands. And that was very, it was, I felt they were a bit weird, to be honest, like. But then in that meeting, hearing for the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ properly, the gospel that, that, that I was a sinner, that I had fallen short of the glory of God, that God loved me, 
And I remember the response that I made to the Lord. And I, I remember coming to the front to receive him as my Lord and Savior. And I have to tell you, in that moment, I, I mean, it felt as though I was the only person he'd ever made. It felt as though every single part of his attention was entirely focused on me. And I know he's still holding all things together by the power of his word. And he knows the thoughts of every human being. He knows the beginning and the end. But in that moment for me, it felt like I was the center of his universe. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand why God would love me. Because there was nothing in me. I knew then. You know, I kind of thought I was something, but when you really know who you are, I knew there was nothing in me that he should love me, but he did. And as a young Christian, I remember reading my Bible and realizing as I was growing in my faith that he loved me incredibly. He loved me more than, you know, in the Old Testament we told, well, the old concept was, you know, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. But the New Testament takes it much further than that. The Bible doesn't say love your neighbor as yourself. It does, but it goes beyond there. In the New Testament, it's, Jesus said, as I have loved you. <laughs> so, love one another. It's like he lifts us. Like even self-love and the desire to save ourselves pales into insignificance when we see his love for us. How God feels about you and me as individuals. How 24-7 Jesus gets before the Father and cries out for you by name. Knowing exactly what's going on in your life. Knowing exactly how the devil is going to go at you. In some ways putting boundaries and everything. Everything about your life. The center of his attention. For God so loved the world. And I think we read our Bibles and we, we miss the wonder of what we've come into in this thing called the new covenant. This, this new way of relating to God. In the Old Testament, I mean they had relationship with God. You, you read Moses or you read Abraham and the story of how he walked with God. And God appeared to him and spoke to him. And, and all these things happened. And it's profound, and you, you read that, and I don't know if you, but sometimes you, you read and you almost wish, yeah, I wish I had that. But we miss actually what we have. We don't see what God has given us, which is far more than what they had. And, and the Bible tells us so many profound things, and one of them is the sense of how massively significant you are to God. And I want to read together with you in Matthew 11, verse 10 to 11. Uh, I want to just read this portion of Scripture and then just break it open, or part of it. So Jesus is, is, is a period and he's kind of early in his ministry. And his disciples are talking about John the Baptist. You remember the one who came before Jesus and who, you know, pointed to Jesus. He actually baptized Jesus. He brought all of Israel to repent pretty much. And Jesus talks about him and says, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus actually tells the disciples that John was prophesied over 700 years before he was born. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, this is 700 years before Jesus comes to the planet. Isaiah the prophet says the Messiah is going to come. 
And he says, but before he comes, God's going to raise up a prophet, a messenger, who'll prepare the way for the Lord. I'll show you just now where he says this. And he'll go before the Lord. And he'll prepare the way for the coming king. And so Jesus actually tells us that John was such a significant person to God that 700 years before John is born, he writes about him in Scripture. The prophet tells the the nation about this person, this one individual that will shake a nation, John. Then he says, I tell you the truth. So he's just pointed the significance of John. Then Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. Among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. In other words, Jesus, who is God, who's now come, looks back over thousands of years of humanity, all the way to Adam. He looks at every person. He looks at Abraham. He looks at King David. He looks at, he looks at Isaiah, the prophet who prophesied about John. He looks at every single Bible character you know. Every person ever born. And he says, in the history, in the history of mankind, there is no one greater than John. And John, the word, he uses the word greater. The Greek word is megas. It literally means more significant, more important. He's the most significant person To God, he's the most important, valuable person in the history of his dealing with people. And then he says this, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven, this new thing that I'm doing, is greater than he. Did you think that God might consider the least of you? Because you're in the new covenant. You're in the kingdom of heaven. John was looking towards when the king and the kingdom would come. But you're in the kingdom. God's done something in your heart through grace. Did you think that God might think of you as being more significant than the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets? Greater than Abraham. More important. More important than Moses. More significant to God. He would say to the disciples, every hair on your head is numbered. I know them. I mean, come on. I love my daughter, but I don't know how many hairs she's got on her head. But God knows how many hairs you've got on yours. He knows everything about you. He's totally in love with you. Let's look at Isaiah quickly. This is 700 years. Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5. Talks about this one who will come, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley will be raised up. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough ground will be made level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken to it. It's spoken that John the Baptist would literally point to the glory of the Lord. He'd point to the one who would come. The voice of one in the wilderness preparing a people. So it's quite cool to have your prophesied 700 years before you're born. It's written down. That's pretty significant. 
And then God says, but he means less to me than you do. Because your name is not written down, because I don't need to write your name down. Because your details are not written down in the Bible. It doesn't change the fact that you have greater worth to me than him. The Bible tells us some beautiful things in Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we, this is the new covenant, are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to, God, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God prepared some things in advance for John and we know it because they were written down. But do you know that in his book in heaven, there, is book, there are books in heaven, he wrote down things for you in advance before you were born, before you were in your mother's womb. He wrote things down prepared things down for you to walk in. <laughs> and I look at John and I, I just have to marvel that he, that God would feel like it about any one of us. I mean, this guy was pretty sold out for God. And I want us to look at this because I think, we, again, we miss the wonder of grace, which is God's unmerited favor that he's given you and me. In other words, he has given us what we can never earn and never deserve because he's that kind of person. But John, as it came to an Old Testament guy, was pretty radical. Listen to this in Luke 1, 76. His mom and dad are, are barren. They can't have a child. His dad gets picked by a lot to go into this a place where he serves God. Once a year, one person goes into that place. He goes in to make sacrifices before the people and in that place, an angel of the Lord appears to his father. And now they can't have children. And the angel says to him, you're going to have a child. It's a miracle child. And uh, the bottom line is he doesn't believe it. There's this long story behind it. Finally, finally, he, he gets struck barren. He can't speak because, um, dumb, because, because actually he doesn't believe. I mean, come on, how are we going to have a child at, at our age? But God said it. And then when the child is born, his mouth is opened. And he says, and you, my child, talking to this young baby that's now been born, will be called prophet of the most high. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. This is a baby. <laughs> From a baby. You, my child. He's so significant. You're going to go before the coming of the Lord. And you will prepare the way for him. The angel of the Lord appears to his parents to tell them this. In Luke 1, 14 to 15, this is what the angel said. He will be a joy and a delight to you. This is what the, the angel said about John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> Many will rejoice at his birth because he's going to be a great person in the sight of God. And he was. He, I mean, literally is a miraculous birth. He lives, his parents are really old, which is why they don't think, how's it, how are we going to have children in our age? They've never had a child. They couldn't have children. But they're all pregnant according to the promise. And the child is born and the promise comes, the prophecy comes. And then John probably lives, funny enough, quite a hard life. The Bible tells us he lived in the desert, in the wilderness. Most likely because 
his mom and dad had died. So he grows up in the wilderness. And it's as though God doesn't want him corrupted by the corruption of Israel. And so he takes him out of the towns. And John grows up in the wilderness literally under the hand of God. Like a prophet of old, literally. Grows up in the desert. In the wilderness. He's not corrupted. He's not tainted by the world. He has nothing. Literally, the clothes he wears reveals he's not at all attached or attracted to the world. He is totally devoted to God. Listen to this in Luke 1.15. And he will be, last verse, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. In fact, the Bible, with some translations say, even from before he was born, which is a better translation. And do you remember when he was in the womb, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to visit uh, Elizabeth, who was his mother, and John was a baby in the womb. And when Jesus, who was in his mother's womb, was near John in his mother's womb, John was so full of the Holy Spirit in the womb that he started leaping because somehow he knew the Messiah, the one he would point to, was nearby. God was working on him even in the womb as he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And you think, this is a pretty significant person. And God says, and he's nothing compared to you. He owns nothing, lives in poverty for God. In Luke 3 verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, and, the, and Annas and Caiaphas are actually both very corrupt high priests. Thanks, Kim. I wish you got tissues here too, I think. So during the, the high priesthood, the high priesthood, are, are, it's the pinnacle of the Jewish uh, priesthood. It's, it's, these are the high priests, and both of them are compromised. Both of them are actually in bed with Rome. They're no longer actually reflecting the, the, what they should to Israel. And so it's during this time of corruption at the highest level, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. So he's in the desert. He's taken out of the corruption, and in the desert... The word of God comes to him and God starts to speak to him about what he needs to do. And he comes out of the desert and he really preaches a revival message. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The king's about to come and you're not ready for him. He's strong and he's bold. He's not scared of anyone. You're not scared of anyone. I mean, the religious leaders come to him and he just rebukes them. I mean, this is not a good way to grow your ministry. The Pharisees and the Sadducees finally come to check him out, but and he he bases himself down and uh, basically at uh, on the um, on the same river actually that Israel crossed over into the Promised Land, and he's based there, and all Israel comes to him. Everyone's coming to this guy. The, the whole nation. There's no internet. There's no media. But word gets out. Something's happening. There's somebody that's arrived. There's something on this guy. And the whole nation starts to come and visit him. And he starts baptizing them in the Jordan River. And eventually even the religious leaders are coming. And he's rebuking them because he's saying, you're corrupted. He's strong and he's bold. And then he would prepare the way for the Lord. He, t- he tells them all, this is what, if you think this is amazing, I am simply a messenger. I am the one coming. One behind me is going to come. He's going to do greater things than me. And I love, he would reveal the Messiah, Isaiah said. And so one day he's baptizing people and he looks up and there is Jesus. 
And he sees the Spirit of God come upon him in that moment. And he knows this is the Messiah. So, I love what he said. Listen to this. He says uh, in Luke 3 verse 16. He says, I, I baptize you with water. He's talking about the one that will come. But one more powerful than I will come. The, thro- the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then in John 1, 29, he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he reveals the one who will change the whole world. This is a very significant person and a very significant prophet to God. He, he, the Bible says that he'd be in the head of the same spirit as the, as the prophet Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet in the Old Covenant, one of the great prophets of the Old Covenant that, had, that would call down fire uh, upon the prophets of Baal and literally break down idols. Um, and so John would be in the spirit of Elijah. But amazingly, John is braver than Elijah. Do you remember Elijah and Jezebel have this little tussle up on the hilltop and he, he calls down fire and he, he wipes out all the prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel, the queen of Israel, says, I'm going to kill that guy because he killed my prophets. And so she hunts him down and he runs in depression. This is Elijah. Runs in depression. He wants to die. I mean, he's got pretty much the king and the queen of, of the nation that he's in who are trying to kill him. And he goes and he hides in a cave. And God eventually kind of has to work through him. But John, who had the same spirit on him, never ran. The Bible tells us this incredible story of how the king of Israel, this is in John 14, I won't read it, but it's in John 14, 1 to 12. The king of Israel is a man called Herod. Herod is an incredibly powerful king and a wicked king. And Herod, who's supposed to be the king of Israel, in other words, this, remember, this is Israel, this is the church of the Old Testament. This is the nation of God, the people of God. The king is supposed to be a beautiful reflection of how everyone should look. And this king Herod, what he does is he's corrupt, he's in bed with the Romans, and he's also, he's also actually sexually immoral. So what he does is his brother has a beautiful wife called uh, Herodias, and he decides he wants his brother's wife. So he takes his brother's wife as his own, and he has this feast, and now he, his brother's wife is with him, sleeping with him, and at one point... His brother's wife's daughter, his name is Salome. She starts dancing sensually before the feast. And he's, he, they're basically almost worshipping him as though he's a king, as, as though he's God. And John, with, un, without any fear, speaks up to the king of Israel. He says, what you're doing is wrong. You're not being a good leader. You're not reflecting God to the people. You need to repent. And this is not a message that the king wants to hear. And so Salome, because she speaks to her mom Herodias, who realizes, man, she might lose some footing, gets her daughter to dance. Essentially, and at one point, King Herod goes, ask of me anything in my kingdom and I'll give it to you. Because he's trying to impress the guests. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. John's already in jail because he will not back down because he's brave and courageous. Unlike Elijah who ran, he stands. 
And he gets martyred. He literally has his head lopped off and brought on a platter into the dinner. And he doesn't fold, stands firm to the end, faithful to God. The greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. I love him. And you would think, you know, the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, that's kind of a title to carry. But when he sees Jesus, a lot of his disciples start defecting. And so everyone's like, hey, your disciples are bailing on you. Normally men are threatened and intimidated by that, but he's so godly. He says this in John 3 verse 30 about Jesus. He must become greater. I must become less. This man is so pure, he doesn't even care that he's losing fame and glory. He's been the, he's been the, the flavor of the month, and that flavor is dying, and the flame is shrinking. And he says, that is 100% how it should be, because it's not about me, it's about Jesus. I mean, this is a godly man. I don't know if there's anyone here who in their own merit, their own right, that's as godly as this guy was. He gave it all for, for God. And then how can God say, the least of you is more valuable to me than him? I mean, you think of just the disciples. Thomas doubts, Peter denies. They want to call down fire on a village that doesn't reflect them well or doesn't embrace them well. They're squabbling about who's the greatest. John's like, he must be great, I must be less. The disciples are like, who's going to be the greatest about us? These are the early apostles. They'll all deny Jesus on the night that he's, he's warned them, he's prayed for them. And they'll all run away in fear of their life when he gets arrested. Yet John stood to the end, did not, did not flinch in the sense of what he was willing to do for the Lord. And you look at them and you think, I think he's, he's actually in my mind kind of better than them. God says, no, they were the great ones in the kingdom of heaven. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is worth more to me. Which means if you think you're the least valuable person in the kingdom of heaven, that's 2,000 years of Christians. You might think you're the least here. But now we're going down to the whole kingdom of heaven. The least. Do you think you might be the least maybe in 2,000 years of Christians, with all their failures, with all the mistakes, all the things. And, and Jesus said, the least is worth more to me, greater than him. You see, you're positioned in a different relationship to God. You have a different way of relating to him, and he relates differently to you to how he did to God. John was one who was pointing towards something that Jesus was going to do. It wasn't just to Jesus. It was what God was going to do through Jesus with humans. And he was going to bring people into a different kind of relationship to the relationship that anyone in the Old Testament had had with God. I mean, in the Old Testament, people serve God and they love God and they gave themselves to him. But in the New Testament, you and I have a different relationship to God. In other words, I could say um, Ivan is a good friend of mine. Let me use Corin because she's a girl. Corin's a good friend of mine. I love her. She's awesome. But she's not MC. She's not MC. Doesn't, I don't relate to her like I do to MC. There's a different way of relating 
And this is something that happens with the New Testament. There's a different way of God relating to us, a different way of him seeing us. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 32, I just want to read this. It talks about husbands and wives. And again, this is a picture of Jesus in the church. And it shows how God relates to us. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, here's the thing. Husbands, how much, when you got married, this is a video I saw recently, actually, it's, a, it's actually a joke. It's a, it's a Ford, I think it's a Toyota Hilux or something advert. And there's this guy standing, and it's obviously on his wedding day, because I think it's so real, I don't think he acted it. And he's standing there, and, he, and, 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 and obviously you can't see his wife arrive on the day, but he, he looks, and he, his best man's next to him, and he's got his suit and his little flower, and he looks, and as he sees her, he just goes, and he starts crying, and his best man's laughing at him, and he's like, I can't believe I'm marrying her. And it's a, it's a Toyota Hilux in the advert. <laughs> but there is that moment. Do you remember that moment when you saw her appear down the aisle? Do you remember what you felt? Do you remember feeling like, I can't believe this is happening. I, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the universe. And then, and then he says, husbands... Love your wives just as Christ loved the church. In other words, God's saying even that love isn't enough. There's a deeper love that we to find. It's a love that goes beyond that. And if I loved MC that much when I married her, how much more then does God not love me and you? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then he says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. That thing we enjoy called marriage is a shadow of something that God wants to have with us. It points to something. It's a shadow of the real. This love that we have is a shadow of the relationship that God has with us. In other words, the marriage is the shadow. The relationship to God is the real thing. The marriage will be for this world and this life, and when we die, it's over. But forever, we married to God through Christ Jesus. We're married to Christ. And John tells us this in John 3.29, Listen to this. John's talking. This is the same John we were looking at just now, the one who is least, you know, with less than the least in the kingdom of God. And the disciple, his disciples are talking to him about, you know, how things are going. And he basically says this, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. How many of you know that you are called the bride of Christ? In other words, that shadow, that picture. And then he says, the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him 
and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. John tells us that his relationship is different to Jesus, to how yours is. Because he's the best man at the wedding. And the best man at the wedding is therefore his friend. But the moment is really not about him and his friend, the one who he's standing by, the one who he's pointing towards. The joy that he feels when he hears the bride's voice. He, he says, actually, my relationship is different to your relationship because you're the bride. And so actually, he loves you different to how he loves me. He sees me differently to how he sees you. I'm the friend of the groom. In fact, every Old Testament prophet was a friend of the groom. But you're the bride. You're the beloved. You're the one they looked at through the ages, longing to see the coming Messiah. And he came after that. They looked, they longed for it, but they didn't have it. But you got the fullness of it. Because God chose when you would be born. God chose when he would create you. God birthed you. He said the times, a lot of us were portioned before we were born. God chose that you'd be born when you were born. That you would come into a new covenant. That you would be called the bride of Christ. And on that wedding day, you have a different relationship to God. To Moses, to Abraham, to David, to John. They'll be at the party. But you're the center of it. So when you pray, do you think maybe he listens? When you worship, do you think it maybe moves his heart? When you open up your home and you... You know one of the things, this is not in my notes, but one of the things that Jews used to do, because the, the, the Jewish wedding was a bit different to ours, the thing would kind of officially start, and then there would be a waiting period until the final thing would be consummated. And we kind of in that moment of this waiting period. It's sort of been consummated, but it hasn't. And what the, 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 the bride would do to be waiting for a groom to come and take her, because there would sometimes be a while he had to go prepare a house and get everything ready, and Jesus did say, I go to prepare a place for you. So he's busy doing that right now. And I often wonder if it took him six days to make the whole world He's been at this for 2,000 years, so. <laughs> and then he, the, the, the wife, the, 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 the lady that was the betrothed, would put a candle in a window. And every night, you can imagine, he can't, you can't date. You wait. There's no dating. It's betrothed, but now we've got to wait until that moment comes. And what she would do is light a candle every night. And he would, I imagine, if I was waiting and I'm preparing and working. And I know she's getting ready, learning. And every night I would go and look at that candle, man. Just, ah, oh, she's preparing herself for me. She's waiting for me. And that was a sign that she was learning how to be a wife. They were both learning from their parents how to be ready to come into this new thing. And Jesus said, let your light shine. What's he saying? When you open your home, when you love one another, you let your light shine. And the Lord looks at you and he goes, oh, she's waiting for me. She's preparing herself for me. 
Bible says, I don't know when I can come and fetch you. The Father knows the day or the hour, which is just like the Jewish thing. But every time I see your good works and you're showing me you, you, your love for me. Yes, I'm not throwing it today. Yeah, cold weather. John was the best man, but you're the bride. Walk as such. See yourself in God the way he sees you. And it's grace. It's love that is given without merit. The Bible says God didn't love you because you're so awesome and beautiful. In fact, you and I were enemies and broken and messed up. God loved you because he is love. And then he crowned you with a crown that you don't deserve. In Jude 1 and 2, just to finish, Jude's the brother of Jesus and he writes a book to the scattered church and he, he says to those who have been called, do you know that you've been called? Who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. You are loved. With an everlasting love. And I felt I just wanted to bring this side to this because sometimes I think we miss how significant we are. How, how the Bible says if one of us drifts, he wants to leave the 99 to find you because you're precious to him, you're valuable to him, you're loved by him. And so I'd love to close this and maybe pray with you guys. And I think we might break bread after that. But uh, why don't we close our eyes and bow our heads. Oh. One of the amazing things about God is the Bible says that he is love. And the word used in the Bible is uh, not an English word, it's translated. But the word used speaks of a love that is given without expectation. It's given without uh, it being earned, it, it, it's, it's a love that comes, it's given freely as a gift. The Bible tells us that every human being on planet earth has actually been unfaithful to God. We should have been born and devoted to him from the day of our birth. But all of us have been unfaithful. In some ways, we've prostituted ourselves with the world. There was actually a prophet in the Old Testament called Hosea. And God told them, marry a prostitute wife. Hard for a Jewish man to do. Righteous man. And she failed him over and over and over again. But God said, I want to use you as a picture of how I am with people. And all of us have been the prostitute. All of us have loved things more than we've loved him. But God so loved the world. And if you heard a day, God loves you. God wants to be in a deep, deep love relationship with you. He wants to forgive you of everything you've done. He wants to wash you and cleanse you. He wants to set you apart for himself. He wants to be with you forever. But you need to choose. Just like we are asked, will you marry me? 
And there's a response that needs to be made. And in some ways, God is reaching out through the whole Bible, through me today, and saying, will you marry me? Will you be my beloved? Will you be the object of my affection? For I have loved you with an everlasting love. Before I created the world, I knew you. I knew you by name. I wove you together in your mother's womb. I breathed life into you. Will you choose me? And if you've never, ever done that, if you've never given yourself to him, you need to do that. Because if you choose to not accept his offer, you then are separated from the one who loves you for eternity. Because we have to choose. And if you're here and you've never chosen him and you're saying, God, I choose you today. Yes, Lord, please forgive me for what I've done. Please bring me into your beloved. I want to be in that relationship with you. Then with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you respond by lifting your hand and saying, yeah, that's me. Jesus, please accept me. I want to know you. I belong to you. I want to spend forever with you. Is there anyone today? I wasn't sure if there were any people that didn't know him. But I always want to give people a chance because... God loves you. And in some ways gets on his knee and says, will you? And you can choose to walk away. It's your right. He won't force you. But he does love you. All right. And then I want to pray for us. Lord, I pray where the devil sometimes comes and lies to us about how you feel about us. Last to us about how you pray for us night and day. Last to us about how we are loved with an everlasting love. Father, that you loved us so much. In Christ Jesus, that you came and died on a cross and shed your blood so that we could be with you. With you forever, God. Father, I pray for everyone here today that they would learn how to walk with you as one who's in a greater place than John was, a greater place than Moses was, a greater place than King David was, that they would know the love of God that surpasses understanding, (laughs) that they would know this love completely, God, that they would walk with it over them as a banner. One One of the scriptures says, his banner over me is love, that they would know like they know like they know, That, Lord, every hair on their head is numbered. Every part about them. That you are for them. And you want to be with them for eternity. And I pray for them, Lord, that they, like that young virgin bride who's waiting for her groom, would keep themselves pure for you. And that they would, in this place, let their light shine. Knowing that everything they do moves your heart, God. Because you see everything. There's nothing hidden from your sight I think we're going to break bread now and we're going to worship after but I want to see here's the thing about breaking bread can we get that out breaking bread is there's many things that we can learn about God through it but one of them is actually the picture of a wedding a bride when a couple get married 
the woman is supposed to keep herself sexually pure, emotionally pure. She shouldn't have given her love to others. She should have kept herself for one man. I think this modern thing of dating, I want to vomit. I think keep yourself for one person, for one man. But then on the wedding night, don't take it. We'll do it just now. Just get what you need. And on the wedding night, in the Jewish religion, the Old Testament, they would make love first night on a sheet. And that sheet would actually be taken and given as evidence that this marriage is consummated because the woman's hymen would break because she kept herself pure. And blood would be spilled on the sheet. Actually, it would be a painful moment. Often it is the first time. But part of that pain is to illustrate the pain that God will go through to save us. And the blood is a symbol of the blood that he will shed because we don't have pure blood to give. Our blood's corrupted. So he gives his own blood to consummate this thing called the, the marriage of the Lamb. And he gives his body, the Bible speaks about we become one flesh. He gives his body. And again, there's this picture of us joining ourselves to him as members of his body as we partake of what he's given. And so here's the deal. None of us None of us actually can produce the blood that's needed to consummate the marriage. But God so loved the world that he provided his own blood. And so as you break bread, that bread is a picture of his body broken to reconcile you to him when you couldn't be reconciled, to love you when there was nothing in you that was lovable. And the blood is a symbol of his blood that was shed to consummate this thing so that you would be his beloved, married to him. So Lord, we partake right now and we do thank you, Jesus, for your great love towards us, that we are the bride of Christ. Thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you for your blood that was shed so that we could be reconciled to you and joined with you for eternity, Lord held by you in your firm embrace of love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. As you partake, know what you're doing. Know what you're doing. You're in a sense of saying, I'm married to him. I'm betrothed to him. And the day is going to be quite soon, I think, where he will come and snatch you to be with him. And you'll be with him forever. Married to God. The bride of Christ. Everyone go out and take in. I need some as well, please. Ah, oh, thank you. Way ahead of me, thank you. Thank you. Why don't we stand together? Lord, thank you for your love. The, the writers of the Bible talk about it being beyond human understanding. A love that goes beyond time and space. A love that goes beyond our ability to even fully comprehend. That you have loved us with an everlasting love. That before you made the world, you loved us. 
knowing who we would be, knowing how you'd create us. Thank you that the least here is greater than the greatest of the Old Testament. And Lord, that we can come and worship you in a response and say, Lord, we love you. We love you for your kindness, your mercy, your grace that you've shown us. We love you that you've seated us with you in heavenly places, in places we do not deserve. That we will one day rule and reign with you, God, even though there's nothing in us that should earn that place. But you gave it all so that we could have it all. And so we love you, God. Let's just finish with one song. And I want to ask you to worship him. Worship him, man. Tell him you love him. Tell him how amazing he is because he is. This is the love of God. Let's do that now.